Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today's episode is a very special episode. Joining us is F. Wesley Schneider, co-creator of Pathfinder. Wes, have I said your last name correctly? You have indeed. Ah, nice. I nailed it. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. You're the second person I've ever met that used his middle name more than his first. What is the story behind people calling you Wes? Well, I mean, that's that's the name that I was actually raised with. So, like, my parents always uh, called me Wes anyway. So, you know, I, I think it's the thing where my parents are just looking out for uh, my my future writing career because it sounds way more pretentious to have an initial. <laughs> they, they literally had the power to put the name they liked better in the front. What were they? What does the F stand for? Uh, really, after, like, all of these years of me going by an initial and, like, never saying it and being, like, coy about it in every single form of media, like, now is when I'm just gonna be like, oh, yeah, it's been this all the time. Yeah, no, I'm not telling you guys. Oh, okay. (laughs) That was a mystery. (laughs) We're keeping this secret forever. Listen, once the internet hears it once, it'll get out there. So you want to keep it, I understand. You (laughs) can't take anything back. Once it's out there, it's gone. That's right. You are our Professor Emeritus. I say that because you recently left Paizo. When you first offered to come on the podcast, Christian and I discussed what we'd like to talk to you about. And the idea of having you discuss what went into the origins of Pathfinder came up quickly. But we decided that we're sure you've told that story ad nauseum and we're sure it's available in many other sources. (laughs) So instead of starting at the beginning, we think we have an opportunity here to talk to you about the end. You recently amicably left Paizo, so I'd love to hear what went into that, what your time has been like with them, and where you see yourself going now. Um, It's been super cool. I mean, really, I've got to spend the last 13, 14 years of my life making role-playing games with some of my best friends, and that's been incredible. And I mean, not like, it started with working on Dragon and, like, working on Dungeons and & Dragons and, you know, doing those magazines and evolved into doing, um, you know, our own adventures and our own periodicals for ourselves and eventually our own role-playing game. And it's been fantastic. It's been great. We've really got to be our own masters. Um, folks like Eric Mona, Sarah Robinson, James Jacobs, Jason Bowman. Like, we've been there for over a decade now putting together this game and really getting to be our own masters and, like, living with our successes and our failures, and that's been super exciting. But it just sort of got to the point where it's just like... Even though I've loved doing that, there's been a number of other challenges that I've wanted to take Mm. on. And the other big part of it is Paizo's grown exponentially in the last few years. We've had incredible authors like Crystal Frazier, Jessica Price, Amanda Hammond, Linda Zayas-Palmer... Adam Daigle, Rob McCreary, Owen Steer, Stevens, like on and on and on. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to list the entire freaking department because it would take sure. forever. But like everybody working on Paizo's design and development uh, and editing teams are freaking superstars. But the company is only so big. And there's some of us who have been there for like over a decade and have gotten our opportunity to do the thing or mm. tell the story or whatever have you. With me stepping aside, with some others moving on to new opportunities, this is opening up the door for some other folks to really get the limelight, to really tell their stories, and really to do some awesome new things that, truth be told, like, 
a cis white dude in his 30s has had the opportunity to do like for a, a decade. So let's give the opportunity to some of these other voices to do their own cool things and to tell stories that I and people like me wouldn't have told. So, you know, it's been the thing where some opportunities lined up for me. I'm going to take advantage of them, but I'm super excited about the opportunities that's leaving behind me at Paizo and for the stories that the Pathfinder RPG can tell. 10 years is a long time to have spent that much of your life. Uh, Do you still have some fingers left in the pie? Are you still going to be involved with Paizo's projects, or are you out completely? Oh, I've still got a number of things that will be trickling out over, I'm sure, the next year or so here. In the next few months, Book of the Damned is going to release as a hardcover. That was a book that I wrote that turned into a series that is now developing into a hardcover, like hell and the lower planes have always very much been me and james jacobs's thing so that's going to be releasing i've had a hand in starfinder which is going to be hitting here in august and i just got a look at what some of the final versions of that is going to look like and that's going to be that's just mind-blowing it's a freaking incredible game um so that'll be coming out and then yeah i've got a few other um uh, a few other things in the hopper that aren't quite uh, announced yet so you'll you'll still be seeing my names in uh pathfinder books for a while here to come I just wish the passion hadn't left you. You sound very bored when you talk about this. You feel very disinterested and disconnected. I just wish you had the passion still. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, this became a nine-to-five job like about five or six years ago. (laughs) I mean, it's it's just like, yeah, what color dragon are we going to invent today? I mean, I guess chartreuse hasn't been used, so... Yeah, sure. So new beast cheer, I guess I gotta pull five more dragons out my butt. Yeah, pretty much. Just like plaid. Is plaid a color? Yeah, plaid dragon sounds good. Whatever. I now immediately want a plaid dragon. I need that so bad in my life. It'll be huge in Portland. <laughs> Leaving Paizo, something's really going to have to draw you away. What is it that you've left to? Um, That is right now uh, a mystery that I leave up to my um, benevolent patrons. They have not made any announcements yet, but that is very much in their hands. Interesting. Hmm. I didn't know there was going to be so much mystery roll around you. That's no, it's just, it's, it's honestly the sort of, th- I mean, it's all very business and contracts. It's Did like, you write the intrigue book? Did I write the intrigue? <laughs> no, I write hell. I write about contracts and devils. Like, come on. <laughs> Speaking of writing, you wrote the novel Bloodbound, which is the first book we ever did an episode on. Nice. We loved it. And in fact, it sits as my favorite of all the Pathfinder Tales books we've covered so far. That would sound really good if we did more than three books. So you're, you're a top of three. But listen, that's still good. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> I loved the brooding nature of Larsa. She really hit a cool thread for me. And Considine was a stellar character. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. We actually had a whole debate about how I read somebody's name wrong the entire time. And that might have been Considine's. No, Considine's uh, spot on. Good. Nailed it. Uh, but it's been some time since you wrote the book. Reflecting on it now, what are your feelings on it? Oh, geez. I mean, any time, that was my first novel, so it was fantastically educational. Um, one of the big things, probably the most educational thing about it is that if I had actually split the book into, like, with the word count, with the number of words that I wrote, I could have gotten two novels out of it easily. So there was a point where, like, the book was, like, 140k and my editor on it, James Sutter, was just like, in no word, like, what? You'll see that Bloodbound is 
one of the largest, if not the largest, Pathfinder tale book. Just largely because Sutter was like, okay, we can give you this much room, but come on, dudes. So I would have paced it way differently. Um... But overall, I don't have a lot of regrets about it. I look back and it's like, oh, I would have done this differently and I learned this about this and so on and so forth. But overall, I'm pretty pleased. Honestly, the one thing that really going into it would have surprised me, but in in retrospect is like, well, duh, dummy, um, is how many people gravitated toward Jadane rather than Larsa. And in retrospect, it's like, well, duh, Jadane's the one with the character arc. I mean, she goes from being naive to being, like, going through hell to coming out on the other side far more confident, assured, capable, and being a priestess far more um, comfortable with her faith and her belief and um, what her role is as a messenger of the goddess of life and death. While Larsa is at the beginning Larsa and is at the end Larsa. She's sort of Batman. She, <laughs> she at the beginning she is the knight. At the end she is the knight. So I was like meh. <laughs> That's interesting to hear because I know Caleb gravitated toward Larsa. I personally gravitated toward Tashan. So mm-hmm. um, how do you know that people um, gravitated toward Jane? Just like um, feedback you got back from the book or just discussions you've seen about it? Largely that, like word on the street, like people coming up to me at conventions and being like, oh, when are we going to get more about Jadane? And like I was at Gen Con last year after the book had released and like everybody was like, we want more Jadane. When's there going to be a Jadane novel? Jadane should come up in this, that or the other thing. It's like, but... But Larsa's brooding and has a hat. Like uh. <laughs> she loves her um, hat. Yeah, dare right. try to take that away from her. <laughs> yeah, like and but Considine's like totally. Like I will not go so far as to say he's my self-insert character, but he is very much my like <laughs> oh s- snarky bisexual vampire boy. Like yes, so. <laughs> I, I always liked having the sort of villain that you sort of have to work with, and you never really know. I mean, he's always, as long as you're still part of his plan, I guess you'll be kept alive. I, I thought that was cool. And I, I like Christian said, I am with Larsa. I actually liked her. I, I'm glad you had character arcs and other characters. And she had a small one herself, but I, I'm fine with the character that sometimes you just want to watch the character do something. You watch a Batman movie because you want to see Batman be Batman. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to see Magneto have a character arc. I just want to see him inserted into the story and watch his cool perspective and how that affects the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious for like folks who have looked at some of my other work and who have been following me. I mean, you only have to look at as far as the cover of Bloodbound to be like, oh, this is Vampire Hunter D. Sure. And it's like Vampire Hunter D. It's like she's not 100% Vampire Hunter D. I mean, she actually has emotions and, like, and so on and so forth. But I mean, the hat, the killing vampires, like so on and so forth. There's definitely, it's easy to see where my inspirations come from, whether it be D or Solomon Kane or Van Helsing or whatever have you. All of those characters are sort of Batman-esque in that it's like they are driven to do the thing by their role, by their responsibility, by their passion and their push. Um, 
at the end of, you know, Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, or at the end of a Solomon Kane story, you don't have a lot of these characters being like, what am I doing with my life? When, when am I going to settle down and have a family? It's like, no, I kill vampires. Right. Like, that's what I do. <laughs> Not just a cool hat, but her other tool in her arsenal, uh, issue with her parents. Like, that's something every good Batman character needs. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually stole the whole scars and didn't like them thing for another one of my characters. It's just always fun to, like, take little pieces from other people's media. And I don't think there's any content creator that doesn't do that. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, Just the number of times where it's just like, oh, we're going to take a dash of this and a little bit of that and roll that cool thing mm-hmm. in from over there and put it all together in a different configuration. It comes out differently. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, um, it's all Legos. Like, you get your red block, you get your blue block, and so on and so forth. The red block and the blue block may have been around for a long time, but the configurations that you put them in allow you to build something unique. And how many times? This happens to every GM where you come up with a thing, you think it's awesome, and your players go, Oh, is that a character from League of Legends? No, I came up with them myself. Oh, no, here, let me show you. This is exactly the thing you came up with. Okay, well, there's nothing new anymore. There's no new ideas. All the time. I mean, it's it's particularly funny when what happens more often than I would think is, like, than you would believe is that Group A will be working on one thing in a bubble, and Group B will be working on their own thing in a bubble like never the twain shall meet like they no have no concept about what the other one else mm-hmm. is working on and then they release pretty much the same thing happens in hollywood all the time absolutely i can't think of any particular examples but there's definitely been times where we've looked at like you know wizards of the coast or other rpg developers and it's just like Oh, you're doing a whole adventure series on hell? Well, we're doing a whole adventure... Mm. (laughs) Like, whatever. It just happens. I got a piece of encouragement for you. Uh, One of the books we read... I I forget the title. Massive. Hell Knight. Mm. Is this called Christian Hell Knight? Yes, it's... Yeah. Hell Knight. the three books we read, Caleb. I know that's an extensive list. I've got a bad memory. To parse your brain through. Uh, Hell Knight, I think, is actually longer than your book. So I don't think that you actually had to have the longest one. Nice. Nice. But, but I want to I comment you. I uh, I like C.S. Lewis, and one of the reasons for that is he has great prose. And I loved the prose in your book. And uh, I have a secret nightmare here that what I'm about to say, you're going to be like, Caleb, I don't know what you're talking about. But <laughs> I thought, and I noticed that your book was rife with wordplay. Uh, for example, you had a royal advisor named Diaden, which sounds like Diadem, which is a crown, mm, a place sure. called... Thoranly Glen, which sounds like throne and thorny, and it was kind of like an upper place that was, you know, had decayed. Mm-hmm. And there was just like too many to list, and I'm sure I missed some even when I was reading through it. But I really did appreciate those. Well done. So thank you. Uh, but uh, let me let me throw a few things in there. So I am uh, probably one of one of the writers uh, at Paizo who is most likely to slip in some sort of veiled suggestion or like I don't want to see Easter egg because that always sounds so hokey that always sounds like ha ha I slipped in a Sonic the Hedgehog reference wonk wonk <laughs> gotta go fast uh, you've gotta go fast yeah, exactly um though I mean we I've definitely slipped in quotes from like Starcraft and whatnot on the back covers of books but anyway <gasps> um oh my goodness I love Starcraft me and yeah. I just became best friends <laughs> but Ustalov is just filled with references to um a gothic 
horror and fiction. Um, Thornley Glen, for example, is a reference to it's Thornley has one letter transposed from Thornley, which is the name of Bram Stoker's mother's maiden name. Her last name was Thornley before she became Stoker. Wow, um, deep cut there. Yeah, well, it's largely because Ailson Kindler is meant to be essentially when I first invented her as just really a throwaway reference in the back of Pathfinder, what, 11? No, Pathfinder 8, uh, Seven Days to the Grave. Ailson Kindler first appears in uh, the bestiary of Seven Days to to the grave, uh, as the person who wrote the little quote that started the uh, the bestiary, and she got put in there because I needed like who's Pathfinder's Van Helsing, who's the aficionado on the monsters. Um, it's like, well, Van Helsing does like that. We don't really have Van and Vaughn so much in the world, so like I want a character who's like Stoker. So is there a way I can play with the word Stoke to Stoke? To make fire, to kindle, kindler. Ah, there it is. So that's where that came from, and it just sort of snowballed since there. Well, see, at least kindler just is like an awesome sounding name anyway. So it's not like it's just like some weird name that doesn't even make sense. I like it when something like that is like, it makes a good story like this where it's like, it, I was inspired by this, or it is a riff off of this thing, but you can't just look at that and be like, oh, that's... Stephen King spelled backwards, wonk wonk, like, whatever. It's Cran Hexong, <laughs> the vampire hunter. Great. It's Alucard. Wait, it's already used. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's just Alucard backwards. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. I love the idea that this person's first interaction is Alucard. That is great. I am so shocked to hear this. Is your, this is your first foray into writing a novella, a novel? Well, yes and no. So it is my first novel. Um, I did a couple of short stories for Pathfinder's web fiction uh, back in the day. There's a short series called Shattered Steel, which follows a gray maiden who also, now that I've said it, now that I've already talked about Batman during this discussion, she is also sort of Batman. Um it's about a gray maiden vigilante, like, post the Curse of the Crimson Throne. Um, and that's still available on uh, Paizo, both as, like, a, an ebook and, like, as just, uh, like, blog posts. Um, but then I also wrote all of the fiction in the Carrion Crown Adventure Path, a um, series called Guilty Blood, which was the first series that featured Ailson Kindler. There you go. Yeah, it's true. We have an opportunity here. We've just, yeah, okay, we just shined your shoes and pat you on the back, but we have yep. a chance to ask the author a question. And, and when we were reviewing this book, we had like two questions that were on our mind. And we wonder if we could ask you about them. Yeah, absolutely. There's a point when the party comes across people with sort of twisted faces. I was left asking why they were included. I don't really remember them being mentioned except for one more time later in Kindler's house. There was like a, a bust of them mounted on one of them mounted on the wall. But it just kind of seemed like, why was it there? What was your thinking when you added them to the story, and what purpose did you want them to serve? So, Bloodbound follows almost exactly the same route initially as Dave Gross's first Pathfinder Tales novel, Prince of Wolves, uh, in that you have the group departs from Caliphas, 
follows up the road towards Vaunt Hill and is ultimately headed toward, I think in their case, toward Cavapesta. But they're following the exact same route that Larsa and Jadane do. Um, and it takes them dangerously close to um, one of the, let's say, um, one of the higher level menaces in... Ustalov, which is the Monastery of the Vale, which, I'll let everybody know, we're getting into some spoiler territory here. But the Monastery of the Vale, even though it comports itself as just kind of this secretive monastery of Phrasmans, um, it is actually the headquarters of a world-spanning assassin's guild, or assassin's organization slash... Uh, church of Norgorber called the Anaphexia, who are obsessed with keeping secrets. And you the- just made that word up. Norgberger is not a word. Norgorber, <laughs> you know the deity, the neutral evil deity of secrets for the world. <laughs> well, I think his name is good for secrets then. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, he's got this whole organization that operates right out of there. And as the uh, as things start going bad for Larsa and Jadane, I think Jadane's the one who might even be like, I I think there's a safe place up here. I think there's a monastery up here. Um, and the folks with the twisted faces, they are wearing uh, the mask that you see. Um, Norgorb writes where you see a similar version of it uh, in um, like the Skinsall Men and mm. um, yeah, Rise of the Rune Lords. In Rise of the Rune Lords, but also if you look at books like um, Occult Mysteries, you'll see that there's whole write-ups on the Anifex. I'm pretty sure Occult Mysteries has a write-up on the Anifexia. Um If not, then there's also a few of the like NPC books that do as well, and they have this like weird spiral cut mask. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a um, uh, a reference to all that that's going on. It also is sort of a reference to um, Dave Gross's characters who run into the Anaphexia in Prince of Wolves. So if you've read Prince of Wolves, some of that area will be familiar. Some of those villains will be familiar. And in fact, probably the thing that's most significant is, again, spoilers, um, Dave Gross's characters... Uh, Varian and uh, Varian Jagari and Radovan, they're taking a coach through that area, and there's a bridge, and they end up getting like plummeting off the side of the bridge because they're getting attacked um, by warwolves. Larsa and Jadane and company cross over that same bridge, and there is a very purposeful description that there is a coach-sized hole on the side of the bridge. Gotcha. So as you can see, I'm very clever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When reviewing the book, uh, both me and Caleb uh, wondered uh, and thought that maybe the relationship between Considine and Tashan felt kind of underdeveloped. Yeah. Um, was that a result of editing and time constraints or what? Maybe a little bit, honestly. Um, I'd love to go back, like, at some point when I have completely forgotten the book, I'd love to completely torture myself and go back and read the entire thing. <laughs> um, but there was definitely a point during the writing of the book where we used to do additional, like, side stories. For the novels, so like read this little side story, and it will set up the uh, the novel. 
mm-hmm. if you're reading the novel, here's a little side story, that sort of deal. By the time I finished writing the book, we weren't doing that anymore. But I had a side story set up for Tishan ah. showing up in uh, Caliphas and being like, it's cold and these people are barbarians and I hate it. Um, <laughs> uh, and Considine being like, hey, yeah, you, you and I are going to be buds. Uh, and then having doing? a little like ventures. Oh, I would love to read that. My goodness. I'm going to add a little addendum to that question. Was was there some symbolic reason that Tashan was set on fire multiple times? Is is, is because he's burning in hell for dating a vampire? Because mm. being nice. His quote literally here in the notes is, why was Tashan set on fire so many times? <laughs> because I think that uh, authors fall in love with their characters and treat them like Bloody Mary Sue. So, like, I try to be super <laughs> vicious to my characters. Um, like, there was a point where Sutter was reading um, the scene where uh, Larsa gets her, her freaking teeth pulled out of her head. And he's like... They're not going to do it, by the way. They're not going to do it. He's not going to do it. And it's just like, hell yeah, I'm going to do it. It's like, characters exist to be tortured. (laughs) That was one of the reasons I love the book, by the way, because you didn't pull those punches. And you were talking about StarCraft. That's one of the reasons I love StarCraft's story. It doesn't pull those punches. It just kills off main characters because I guess it's time to do that now. Yeah. I could could see, or hopefully I could see... uh, the influence of StarCraft on you there. <laughs> well, I just hate the idea of safety. I mean, there's so many... It's very Saturday morning cartoony. It's just like, well, actually, Adventure Time. Like, you know, they're not going to kill Finn or Jake. It's, sure. it, this is not the episode where it's mm-hmm. not like 8 o'clock on a Thursday. And it's like, oh, yeah, and your main character's dead. Wonk. Um, Are we going to be okay? Well, we have six of the seven main characters on this bus. So, yeah, I think we'll make it through this. Yeah, it'll be <laughs> fine. Um... So even though this was a thing where it's like, yeah, it turns out at the end, Larsa and Jadane are probably going to make it. It's not going to be without scars. Yeah, StarCraft's the uh, pinnacle of, you know, harming their characters. You know, like when Kerrigan becomes the bad guy and then stays the bad guy forever. Forever. (gasps) You take that back. You take that right back. Oh, spoilers. Spoilers for 1994. Wait, wait. No, she just stays the bad guy and probably eventually dies. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tishan is one of the characters where it's just like his situation is sort of left ambiguous at the end like he is definitely like vanished like it's implied that maybe Constantine like spirited him off or something so what the story is with him yeah so I did not get that at all I I got he was set on fire maybe he'll be okay oh wait what's that another fireball yeah he is not okay (laughs) yeah no no he is not okay um but then like the body like it's very it's Constantine ne- takes it away or something? Yeah, it's never yeah. really said. It's like the body is not there anymore. Gotcha. Um, so I see, look, we just assumed Christian. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I caught that, Caleb. I read the book. <gasps> <laughs> There's a lot of things you need to take back today. <laughs> uh, thank you for the Bloodbound book. This was like silk for my brain. I loved reading this. Oh, good. So much. Well, I, I, I just wanted to lose a little bit. Oh, well, I really appreciate it. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's just like, 
it's my first novel. It was something that I, as the editor-in-chief at the company, I would have never have been like, okay, guys, now guess what? I'm going to write a novel and we're going to publish it. <laughs> um, just like my entire editorial pit being like, oh, God. Um, like, I really wouldn't have written it if it wasn't for James Sutter and Chris Carey coming to me and being like, hey, you actually don't suck at this. Maybe you sh- Maybe it would be fun to do this. Um, so <laughs> I love that. It's not that you're good. You just don't suck at this. So give it a try. Well, it is the sort of thing like when you're when you're working with that many creatives, you are very sensitive about like yes, we could do anything, but should we do anything? Um, and like there are some people where nepotism not a concern. That is definitely something that I'm very concerned about. So that those guys really that they approached me and were like, hey. Let's have you go through the paces like any other author. We're going to have you do something small, move on to something a little bigger, and then, like, yeah, this was good. You should do it. I really appreciate uh, both Sutter and Chris uh, working with me and helping me develop this and really pushing me to to do this. Um, the book would not be anything like it is without their help. Um, so those guys were absolutely fantastic, and I can't sing their praises or uh, extol my appreciation enough. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. My friend Christian and I were just cooking up some burgers and having cookout, getting ready to set off some fireworks. Hey, Caleb, do you think these guys would be interested in joining us? You know, I bet they would. I mean, if they listen to Pathfinder Academy, they gotta be cool, right? If role-playing games are your thing, why don't you guys check out our other podcast, Trailblazers? Trailblazers is an actual play podcast where you can see many of the concepts addressed in this show come to life. Season 2 of Trailblazers has been great so far, and I especially like that you can get into it without any prior knowledge of Season 1. It's definitely a fun adventure, especially if you like mysteries and a dash of cyberpunk with your fantasy. If high fantasy is more your style, then consider giving Season 1 a listen. You can listen to Trailblazers on this very feed. We've got a bunch of other ways to listen as well, so go to our site tblazer.net for a complete list of the ways that you can listen. So go ahead, get yourself a hot dog off the grill, set up a lawn chair, grab some dice, and join us. All right, Christian, light them up. Man, it's so hard to believe that back in 1996, we managed to defeat all those aliens. Caleb, are you are you talking about the movie Independence Day? You know that wasn't a documentary, right? Oh, you. Always making jokes. I noticed you started off a lot of adventure paths at Paizo. You're the guy throwing the champagne bottle in the hull to make sure it gets a good sending off. You did the Hellfire Compact. You were talking about how much involved you are with Hell. Uh, Fantasy Hell. Yep. Uh, which started off Hell's Vengeance. You mm-hmm. did In Search of Sanity, which started off Strange Aeons. You were telling us that you were sort of the guy at Paizo for horror role-playing. We saw it in Bloodbound. You stream creepy games. You like old horror movies. You read old scary stories. You reference them in your novels. <laughs> uh, you've been working on a Vampire Hunter D supplement for Pathfinder. What about horror draws you to it? Well, horror is the most powerful emotion. Um, it's like, I say that sort of matter of factly, but, um, at no point in my life have I been in love and thought, oh, maybe the subject of my affection is hiding in my closet. (laughs) I have been scared enough that it's like, oh, 
how many clowns are stacked like cordwood in my closet? Let me not go look. Um, I mean, this is honestly, this is me just coming off of a trip where I was staying at a somewhat creepy place and just spent the last week sleeping with the light on. I mean, that is, there is a primal emotion there. There is, it, there is a feeling there that, um, really breaks down the boundaries between what is real and what is not real, what you know to logically be the truth, and what about what doesn't matter if it's true or not. You just heard a weird creak maybe coming from your apartment, and what could that be? It could be anything, and it's probably going to kill me. I mean, that sort of, the the power of, of fear, the, the very sort of primal response that we all have to being imperiled or the potential to be imperiled is a super strong emotion, and that blurring of the lines between reality and fantasy is really at the core of role-playing games. So it's something that I feel they go hand-in-hand hand to Together, and if you know I can create an experience that embraces both, then fantastic. How do you work horror into your role playing? Um, let's see. There's it sort of depends on the sort of experience you want to have. Um, I find that the surest way to make a game not scary is to embroil it in the in the rules. Um, as soon as <laughs> somebody says, okay, roll initiative, no longer are you the one being threatened. No longer are you the one who has to worry about the thing that might be around the corner. All of that... All of that feeling, that potential, that emotion, that dread um, gets foisted off onto a little miniature on the table. Um, And Mm. then everything becomes concrete. Everything moves into math and squares and little miniatures. Um, So as much as possible, I try to keep the elements of horror in the description, in the unseen, in the what could it be? Well, what do you think it is? I mean, the more (laughs) you can let the players fill in the gaps, it's just like, you hear something around the corner, and they're like, well, what is it? It's like, well, what do you think it is? Um, well, I, I don't know. Like, was it was it a was it a sound? Like, what like, what do you what do you smell? Like, just asking them if you can. Like, that's not a great example, but if you can, asking them leading questions that get them filling in the blanks, that get them engaged, um, and that lets them or sort of tricks them into painting some of the scarier scenes. That's fantastic. I mean, that can be challenging to do in a game of Pathfinder, but there's tons of fantastic horror RPGs like Monster Hearts or Dread where you can take a look at these experiences and you can sort of crib the best of those techniques over into your Pathfinder game. I mean, that's a big section of the um, game mastering section of horror adventures that I wrote where it's just like here's how to trick your players into creeping themselves out. I think that makes a lot of sense, but I I think that sometimes codifying stuff into rules um, can make it easier to roleplay or represent. I know sanity, you know, degradation of sanity is something incredibly hard to get someone to feel on their own. You can't really make one of your players feel insane. 
um, which is why something like the sanity rule is introduced, which in a lot of cases I feel like does a great job of, although it codifies something and brings it to numbers and you think, oh, why should these numbers on my character sheet tell me about how I feel? I should actually feel that uh, sanity degradation is something incredibly hard to actually make someone feel if, you know, you should really ever try to do that. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, necessarily a binary. I mean, one of the best adventures that I ever played was in a volume of Dungeon. It was an adventure called The Dying of the Light, where it's essentially like, okay, guys, over there, creepy house, there's seven vampires inside, and it's seven o'clock. Go get them. Um, (laughs) And you fight one or two, and the players go all out, and it's like, okay, if we rest, they're going to wake up, and there's still five vampires, and they will murderize us. So (laughs) watching players, like, after they go sort of, like, all out, just, like, casting their best spells, throwing away half their hit points, whatever have you, on, like, the first two of five fights, and then having them realize, like, oh, geez, we're, like, half out of spells, we're half out of hit points, our resources are dwindling, We've got five more of these to go through. We've got to play smart. Um, It was one of the most rewarding role-playing experiences I'd ever had because they immediately switched into, like, what can what can we do? We've got to be cautious. And, like, you could really see the dread building from there. So, definitely, there's ways to make those two um, elements, the, the more narrative and then the, the more mechanical, work hand in hand. And that, that takes a time commitment. I mean, so many times my players, I just know... I'm not going to convince them that they should be afraid of this thing until they just fight it because that's what's going to happen is they feel invincible until they fight it. And that's kind of a – it's a hard thing to work with because then it's, you have to wait till they pick this fight with the CR20 creature because they thought it was nothing. And then he has to kill a dude and they go, oh, wait, I guess he is tough. It's so hard to do that without just murderizing one of the players. Absolutely. I mean, so often, at, at least in my experience, the, the way that I've built up those sort of things is to show the, the ramifications beforehand. I mean, if possible, it's like, say it's some giant monster or something, like seeing the effects of like it murderizing some other group or tearing down a thing or like even just like if you're hearing it roaring like constantly in the distance like having that play on your sanity having that get in your head so i mean you can do some of these things where it's sort of beyond the rules you can pick a player or two and like maybe start to almost develop a like on-the-spot psychoses for them, where it's just like you can't get the echoes of this thing's roaring out of your head. So when they finally get to facing it, they're already so unnerved. You know, that's mm. that's part of that is that is one of the the great delights of being a game master. <laughs> g- g- give your players a demonstration, the horror version of a PowerPoint of why you should be afraid of me. Yes, absolutely. Slide <laughs> one. I've I've done the, I've had problems with this and I've had successes. I try it before where like they see this NPC is scared of this thing and they're like whatever we'll come bring it at us. We've killed so many things this campaign. We played we've done sixty sessions and we've yet to die. Come bring it on. Yeah, it's like okay that didn't work out. And then one time, sort of early in my career, my players were sort of in a seedy area. They come across a vampire. It's a slaver place. They come mm-hmm. across a vampire doing something with a slave he just bought, and they're like you can't do that. We have morals. So they try to stop him. He cast Vampiric Touch, and my player who got hit on with it lost like 80% of his hit points with it. And he's like, 
you know what? We're sorry. Can we stop this? <laughs> and he's like, guys, I think, uh, please stop shooting the vampire. We should leave. And the vampire's like, yeah, you can go now. It's so hard to get that right. Well, I mean, that's that's absolutely true. And I think it's experiences like that where all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're, we're not the big deal. Um, definitely playing by the rules can sometimes get that across. But sometimes so can not playing by the rules. I mean, one of the great powers that GMs have is that they're largely in control of the physics of the world. And the mechanics are really the physics of the world. But as soon as you start doing things where it's like, hey, give me your d20. Oh, okay, why? No reason. And then just roll it and then give it back to them. Hmm. What was that for? Uh, Nothing. We'll worry about it later. I'll tell you in nine months. Exactly. Or, I mean, my favorite, and I talk about this in Horror Adventures, is to is to be like, hey, player one, step out, step outside of the room with me. <laughs> and you step out there, and you've got a few options at this point. And I'll skip past that for the moment. But then at some point you bring them back in, and the first thing that happens is the rest of the group goes to player one. And it's just like, what was that? What, what did they say? And then the player has a few different options there, depending on what you've done. Potentially, you have told them some secret. And now the player is the one telling the rest of the players some secret. But all of a sudden, the players are getting this secret not from the GM, who is like the great truth teller to some extent. Mm -hmm. They're getting it from a potentially unreliable narrator. Um Alternatively, you have told this character a bald-faced lie. And then the question becomes, did the player get lied to or are they lying to us? Um, mm -hmm. But then my favorite one, my absolute favorite, and I do this way too often. I shouldn't be saying this on recording, but anyway, um, is to grab somebody, take them out in the hall and be like, how's it going? So you enjoyed the game? <laughs> is this cool? Like, see Wonder Woman yet? Oh, cool. All right. Uh, and then take them back inside. Um, and then everybody's like, what do you say? And the player's like, nothing. What do you mean, nothing? Why'd he take you out? He just wanted to ask me about Wonder Woman. That's bullcrap. Like, what did they tell you? <laughs> so immediately you start turning the group against each other. And then, like, if you have not, if you've done nothing for the adventure that night, like, if you put nothing together, just do that early on. And you'll just watch the players, <laughs> like, turn on each other for the next three hours. And it's hilarious. He didn't ask you that. He knows everyone saw Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> After reading the Horror Adventures, I read the section that is similar to what you just talked about. And I did that in this season of our actual play podcast. Nice. Christian, I, I even, I think, I even did it to you, Christian, or I did it to mm -hmm. Tim, uh, where I just took you aside and asked you how you were doing, brought you back. <laughs> it, it worked really well. Even as a person being brought in, I'm like, uh-oh, something's about to happen. Yeah. And then Caleb's <laughs> like, oh, so how's it going? And I'm like, are you messing with me? Like, is this a joke? <laughs> yeah. Like, are you just being pendaptic? So then, like, you're going to ask me to roll something and then... <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I absolutely love it. I mean, really, the 201 version of that is take everybody out in the hall one by one. Tell three of them nothing. Just be like, hey, everything cool. Say that to three of them, but then to the fourth one being like, okay, this is the thing, but don't tell them. Um, so then you've got everybody being like, he didn't say anything, but they're all sort of knowing, really? Who's lying? I mean, <laughs> so... 
so fun. <laughs> I uh, it actually inspired me to do something sort of branching off from this was I took my players aside and I all told them the same thing. Uh, what I told each of them was is they went through a big thing and they got a message and the message said, one of you has been replaced. <laughs> so they all went back and they all had that note, but they didn't know if anyone else got that note as well. And they all just like took a minute to just stare at each other as they all were thinking in their heads. Did they get that note? Which one of you is it? <laughs> so this is all like, you know, very gaslighting 101. And, you know, normally that's a bad <laughs> thing. But, you know, for a game when everybody's there for it, then it's really enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> now, when implementing horror, let's say in a role playing game, do you think it works better in totality of the campaign? Like this entire thing we're doing, the whole thing's horror all the way through. Or do you think it works better if you just have like a relatively normal campaign and then there's some subsection of it that is horror and something completely different than the rest of what they've been doing? Personally, I feel like horror works best in one-offs um, rather than <laughs> in a lengthy campaign. Um, just because one of the big things about horror is that it's it really relies on pacing. It really relies on, you know... Um, peaks and valleys where you're ranch or you're ratcheting up the tension and then there's a then something happens and then there's a break and then you ratchet it up and something bigger and then there's a break because you can't just constantly have it getting bigger and bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier and scarier and, scarier and then just having that rising moment constantly it gets exhausting and it becomes meaningless eventually so mm -hmm. you have to have those breaks which is why in some cases comedy is a becomes a very important um release valve while also being sort of dangerous to your rising tension um i think horror games make great one night sessions or two night sessions where it's like we're gonna do this thing it's gonna be a creepy thing and then we're gonna do something I'm gonna else. like candles we're gonna do it during a storm absolutely Absolutely. I mean, as it's, so I, there's an old Ravenloft module. It's like Forbidden Tales or something. Um, but it's filled with these hokey tips on how to make your game spooky. Um, <laughs> and I mean, one is seriously. Does it spell it like that S P O O O O O. Yeah, there's like, yes, but there's like 40 O's in it. I mean, it's <laughs> that scary. I mean, there's a bare minimum of 30 O's. Uh, it's like, it suggests at one point, it's like, before the players get there, like, dress up in a cloak and like put a mask <laughs> on and read this. Um, and then when your player and then leave and then when you come back after taking the mask off and your players are like what um you're just like what it's like what <laughs> what how is this a t uh, so frustrating so i mean i definitely had that in mind when i was working on horror adventures it's like i'm actually going to put good tips in here um but i mean one thing that is i find to be particularly strong is yeah like turn the lights down like maybe do not create a fire hazard in your house but really like try to control your environment because if you can get a place where you know you're not going to have your little brother running through or your mom yelling down or whatever um and you can control the lighting and you can maybe have like some spooky music on in the background the room that you have maybe played in a thousand times 
just with a little dimness, just with a little bit of ambiance, um, uh, just a little bit of ambiance music or whatever have you, um, starts to look very different, starts to feel very different, and uh, it's allows this sort of slow dread to creep in and it's it's very effective get those giant candles used in catholic masses those <laughs> creepy candles next to the spooky fire extinguisher just in case things go wrong that's right it, it would very it would scare me a lot if my gm opened the session telling me where all the fire exits are and how to get to them. <laughs> <laughs> um there's a little safety display like in, in planes <laughs> um but there it, as much as i i'm I'm talking in favor of this, um, and really do find it very valuable. I mean, folks often are like, what's the, what's the first thing that you do when you're preparing for a game? I'm like, I create a playlist. Um, because just... Ha- so on your level right now. <laughs> um, because just having in the background, like, a very slow, sort of moody music, um, what's great is that that music is while you're describing stuff, you've got this constant rhythm going on in the background that is just nodding along. It's just agreeing with you the f- the whole time. It's just being like, yep, spooky, 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 spooky. Um, <laughs> but then when you're not talking, when there is that inevitable lull where somebody needs to look up a rule or where you lose your place or when like a die needs to be rolled, you still have something that's going on in the background that is continuing mm-hmm. to reinforce this. Because if there's not something there, if there's not something that is driving forward the tone of a horror adventure um and the gm's not doing it then the players will fill those empty spaces and the players will fill those empty spaces with monty python jokes (laughs) (laughs) i I feel like you've been visiting my sessions you've been sitting in on my games dude this is the universal experience (laughs) is like literally after decades of doing this sort of thing and playing with hundreds of gamers everybody does this and it's <laughs> maddening oh man they just released a new dota hero guys we're playing we're play- i'm just looking at- <sighs> well, there, there's that i have spent a week working on this could you pay attention yeah. for five minutes yeah <laughs> i am familiar <laughs> it might be fair to say your work in search of sanity involves lovecraftian horror that sort of thing inspires me. Cthulhu and other eldritch beings always play a part in my campaigns. Pathfinder has embraced it by putting several of those creatures into their bestiaries from Bestiary 1. What has been your personal experience with Lovecraft and his mythos, and why does why do they inspire you? I'm going to say something that's going to piss a lot of people off. Uh-oh. Um, I'm so freaking done with H.P. Lovecraft. I'm so- okay, that's it. Thank you for this interview. We appreciate your time, but I'm yeah, not be a releasing this episode. <laughs> Thanks for your comment. <laughs> no, guys, like really, did they hang up on me? Oh, rude. <laughs> <laughs> we can't. We can't get rid of you. You're going to give us like ten more subscribers. You think we can just throw that away? <laughs> <laughs> um. So okay, let let me explain my heresy here. Um. So definitely, like in the mid to late '90s, when 
I'm a, a precocious high school student, and it's just like, there's this author who was writing in, like, at the turn of the century and wrote about all this messed up stuff and tentacles and so on and so forth, and it's not, like, in any of my classes, and it's, like, really dark and screwed up. This is super cool, and nobody's talking about it. That's awesome, he said in the days before the internet. <laughs> and I freaking loved it, and I, like, the whole concept of uh, cosmicism or cosmic horror, just that whole the unknowable and like ignorance is your your greatest shield and there's this whole host of unspeakable monsters out there super 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 cool the problem is that then Lovecraftian horror very much became mainstream um, and has sort of turned against the very like Lovecraftian horror as it exists today in my humble opinion, um, is antithetical to the concept of cosmic horror. And let me just mm. throw my um, terminology out there real quick. I say that I am not a fan of Lovecraftian horror, I, but I will say that I am a fan of cosmic horror, and I make this distinction in horror adventures as well, because Lovecraftian horror is the horror and the tropes of the Cthulhu mythos of Lovecraft's writings of Night Gaunts and Shubnigroth and like, you know, the uh very much the stories that you see in uh folks who wrote with him or uh his co collaborators that you see in modern day with like the Call of Cthulhu RPG, all of that. And those still can tell great stories. But the thing that I find to be a problem is that cosmic horror is about the unknowable. Lovecraftian horror has become completely knowable. Like, mm, okay. as soon as you see... Um, oh, it's... A single tentacle? Exactly. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, it's a Cthulhu. Oh, it's a Night Gaunt. It's like, it's it has become this thing that has developed its own mythology and part of the virtue and the vice of mythology is it has become shared it has become known um there is things so based on the unknowable has become known that's such a good way to phrase that absolutely i mean i think i don't know if you guys are watching american gods but i really think that if like lovecraftianism was one of the american gods he would be represented not as the unknowable unspeakable cthulhu but as the plush cthulhu that you see in every game store <laughs> because everybody knows him and everybody's like oh i love cthulhu stuff and i mean lovecraft must be spinning around in his grave so fast that the entire new england region right. could be powered by that turbine sure um, like i vomited <laughs> when i saw a cthulhu nightlight it's like could you get more opposite than keeping you safe in the dark? Absolutely. But on the other side of that, if you look at cosmic horror as less about the individual characters and players and places that Lovecraft wrote about, and more about there are entities out there that are unknowable, and the, um, the whole concept of a ignorant-slash-malicious universe and all of that... That's really fun, and as soon as you start defining your own characters into that, your own mysteries into that, that because 
they only exist largely in your head, they are unknowable to everyone else, that's much stronger to my mind. Hmm. You know, I had always heard and had known about Luther's 95 Thesis. And I know you're all thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Lovecraft? Mm-hmm. Stick with me here. Sure. Uh, but I never, I never read the source material. Mm-hmm. I knew about it, learned about it. When I finally went to seminary and learned the source material, I'm like, oh, why did I never read this? Now I understand more completely what what the heck he was talking about Uh and exactly what he meant. And uh, I have not done that with Lovecraft. I haven't read a single book. I've only ever learned of Lovecraft and Lovecraftian horror by the the second hand. Yeah. And so that's sort of – I think maybe that's why I am – more in love with it because that unknown is still hitting me. I haven't read these books. I'm I'm getting little pieces and then I take that and I make it out to what I want it to be. Yeah. That's definitely the case. I mean, Lovecraft did a fantastic job um, you know, taking the first steps um you know, put out there by Poe and like Algernon Blackwood and like Macon and whatnot, and really defining like I'm going to weave all of these things together into something that's bigger and creepier. But Lovecraft is also just as a historic character. There's a lot of people who are Lovecraft apologists, but at least from my reading of his life and whatnot, he's not really the best. Dude, and definitely in some of his works, it's just like, this is super racist, or this is super sexist. <laughs> um, and it's one thing to be like, well, you know, it's the 20s. Well, but then you go and you read, like, um, read something that's by, like, Robert E. Howard, and it's just like, this dude was writing at the same time in Texas, and this dude is not as like down the like down the rabbit hole as Lovecraft is. Um, I mean, it's like as soon as you open up Mark Twain, nigger Jim, really? You can't just make him like Black John, maybe just one step below. Is this really what we're dealing with here? Yeah. So I mean, there's always the argument of like, is it the time or is it the person? And I'm personally, I feel that in Lovecraft issue it's it is very much the person but the, all of that being said um he has definitely done a great deal to define that genre of fiction there is a great deal that definitely myself and others have been inspired by but i think what happens often is people look back towards the progenitor of a genre and be and are like that's the that's the guy that started it. That guy was great. Let me w- write like him instead of being like that's the guy that started it. That guy was did this this and this well, but was screwed up in these ways. Let me do better than that guy. Let mm-hmm. me do something different from that guy. Let's take what works and move this forward into making it something better. And that is a, that is part of the roots of why I am so much more interested in this genre being cosmic horror than Lovecraftian horror, because I think it has so much more potential without purely uh, relying on the uh, creations and the baggage of the creator. 
And I think that's you made an important distinction here. You're talking about taking it moving forward, it, not just throwing it away because oh he was racist at a certain part. Because if you did, that, congratulations, you're just going to have to shut out the world because there's going to be no actor, musician, or any media producer that you like that doesn't have a problem. Sure. As soon as you find out this wonderful musician Yanni, oh he hit his wife. Okay, I'm not going to stop listening to his music because then I can't listen to Queen anymore. I can't do. I can't watch any Tom Cruise's movie anymore because he believes in this weird thing. You just you just can't do that. It's hard to uh, do it because no one's perfect. I don't know. I can't listen to Lost Prophets anymore. One of the things that I'm most excited about is uh, there is a series coming up um, uh, called Lovecraft Country that's going to be an HBO series. And it's being done by Jordan Peele. Really? Yeah. Which is just like, show me what Lovecraft looks like written by a black dude. It's like, I want to see what this looks like being done by people of color, being done by women, not just being done by white dudes again and again, because I've seen how I've seen how that works. I want this to be something different. I want to see how it could be something cooler and how it could evolve. So that's one of the things in uh, Cosmic Horror that's really exciting me the most right now. And you know what? That's a, that's a distinctly Lovecraftian notion as in the actual person. He said, I want you to take this work and I want you to add your own stuff to this. Let's make this a world that a thousand authors contribute to. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely folks that he corresponded with, and they all added to it, and they all did their own things, and it's gone in a number of different directions, and that's definitely what helped spread it initially, and how it convinced um, so many readers that maybe there was this secret shared body of work that these pulp authors all like knew about and, and maybe this was realer than it it really seemed like um and, and to some degree it's um and it's a cool trick but it's also sort of a cool marketing technique it's just that's like, true uh it gets people engaged and involved and as soon as you're working with that shared language, those shared characters, it starts building this cachet. People like going to stories or books or role-playing games or movies and having that experience of, oh, I know about this thing. Oh, I know that thing. Um, whether it's, oh, that's a reference to Adam Warlock in this horror, in this in this Marvel movie, and that means this, 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 and this. It makes you feel like you're in the know. It's the sure. same way with so much of uh, the Lovecraft mythos. It's like, oh, that's a reference to like the great race of, or the to the Yith, to the Yithians or something. And I know about this from X, Y, and Z. It's a cool feeling. Every GM is a creative person, and it's so cool as a creative person. I feel like I'm involved with that when I do add to that mythos in my own way, even if it's just me using it and it kind of sticks into my universe. I feel like I'm a part of that community. That feels really cool. Absolutely. But in every one of those cases, I would do exactly what those early creators did. And instead of just banking on Lovecraft's words again and again, add your own thing to it. Add your own thing that nobody else knows about because that's what makes it cosmic horror. That's what makes it unknowable. I think something that Lovecraftian horror, or maybe, uh, as you phrased it, cosmic horror, the thing that's really cool about that is that 
anticipation is where a lot of fear is. Once you know about it, it becomes less scary. And these creatures, these just knowing about them doesn't take it away anymore because they're that unknowable where you can interact with them, see them, but you still get that anticipatory fear. That's an elegant design. And there's a uh, there's a creature that's sort of in the, the zeitgeist out there made a couple of years ago by just, you know, a writer on the Internet. And, it, and it's really sort of hit fire. And that's oh, this no. Here it comes. <laughs> creature called the Slenderman. Uh, there it is. Yep. <laughs> I guess Christian's not a fan. Uh, when I first learned about him, something enthralled me about him. And I later realized it was because a lot of his horror is fairly Lovecraftian. I mean, they told they took the whole you can't look at an eldritch creature and remain sane thing and made it quite literally him. Like, that's a huge part of his shtick. If you look at him, you you, you go insane or in the game, you die and you lose. Uh, I even thought that he fit so well in the mythos that I created my own stats for Slenderman with the great old one template. So I had like a, my own little bestiary entry. It just he really sparked my creative juices. What are your feelings on him? Are you aware of him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge fan of creepypasta in general. Take that, Christian. Um, well, it's <laughs> fascinating because it's an evolution of sort of... You can't really say the oral tradition because it's in writing, but it's shared storytelling and it's mm. the it's the um it's essentially the campfire stories of the internet. Um it's the mm-hmm. urban legendry of the internet. Um it's these stories that come up and are passed around and are told again and again and mutate and are are told in different ways and spread again and again. Um, and it's fascinating because the whole concept of creepypasta or fake lore um, has only really developed in the last decade, maybe two decades. Um, but it's very much an emergent sort of horror genre and it's fascinating. Uh, the Slenderman is definitely the poster boy for it with, um, you know, the YouTube series like Marble Hornets or mm-hmm. like the various games that have come up um, like on, on Steam and, and whatnot. Um, and just like the endless amount, like if you type in Slenderman, like the number of like crappy Photoshops that you'll get. Um, is just like in the millions at this point. But there's a few of them, and it's largely the initial ones that showed up on the Something Awful forums back in the day. Some of those are like, what? What? What is this? Like, where did this come from? Is this a real picture? Well, and that's part of the great thing about it, is that it's that whole, like... Is this real? This looks like a photo. I mean, it's a picture. Like, clearly I'm looking at it, and it looks old. I mean, it's that whole sort of where does the reality end and where does the lie start that's so fascinating. Um, I mean, there's whole wikis on creepypasta now where you can just go to those and just find, like, dozens and dozens and dozens of awesome stories that... All feel like, truth be told, most of them are garbage. Um, but you can say that about mm-hmm. anything. But there's enough cool ideas in there where it's just like, this is really neat and would make a great inspiration for X, Y, or Z. I mean, 
one of the easiest ways that you can tell that I'm a fan of the Slender Man and Creepypasta in general is that the Tatter Man is not named the Tatter Man because, you know, that's just a cool name. I mean, this is a dude that exists between realities, that haunts your dreams, that is seen, that isn't seen. I'm not going to say that it's 100% a Slender Man ripoff, but there are definitely vibes of it in there. And I wanted to make sure that early into an adventure path that was going to be highly Lovecraftian, that the first boss was not just you know, ye oldie knight gaunt, or oh, the 15th, like, zoog, or whatever, something that people mm. had seen before, that it was going to be something a little different, that it was going to be a, something a little more modern and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, certainly, if you guys get the opportunity, there is straight up the Creepypasta Wiki, um, which is just a great collection of cool, of cool and not so cool stories um if you get the opportunity definitely check it out because there's some neat 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 stuff on there i didn't know you had made a, a slender man inspired creature would you call him the the, the tatter man yeah the tatter man is a bad guy in uh the first uh adventure of strange aeons uh mm, i need to see that now i need to see stats it's true <laughs> he needs to be codified immediately <laughs> <laughs> we need to know everything about him <laughs> and spread that out what, one of my favorite horror monsters is freddy krueger mm. i'm still waiting for beast jerry to come out with him or better phrased an, an analog of him in it i ran an encounter with freddy krueger and my players in season one of our actual play podcast but my players loved it he just really inspires imagination uh pun intended what are some of your favorite horror monsters? Ooh, let's see. Good horror monsters. Um, I always like the monsters that have a good ecology to them, that have, like, a reason and a modus operandi to them. Um, let's see. Um, well, I will always like vampires just because they're so classic, so duh. Um, ghosts are also very much in that arena because every ghost is a story um there's no two ghosts that are the same you've never run into like oh and you enter the room and there's seven ghosts in here um that's really for specters and wraiths and whatnot ghosts are always the ones where it's like here is this sad story or here is this thing that they do so there's sure. always a lot of potential there oh also actually this is something that i cut my teeth on very early on when i was a freelancer on dragon um i did a ton of work with hags um just because like largely because they never really had much of an ecology they were just always these like creepy old ladies out in the woods and they do weird <laughs> stuff and there's like 30 different versions of them or three you know whatever um depends on how far into an edition cycle you are but uh <laughs> i always really felt like and they always had a, a cool host of abilities and they had the, these coven powers and they always felt very archetypical without really having a single myth that they went back to i mean like while a green hag has vibes of, you know, um, Jenny Green Teeth and, like, Anis Hags and whatnot are very much tied back to, like, Black Aggie and, like, the Anis Hag myths, uh, Gaelic myths and whatnot, um, there's not a ton, there's not really a lot of, like, the archetypical one. There's not really, like, you know, 
the Dracula there. So I always thought it was interesting to like play with them and try to define their abilities and their mythology a little better. So, I mean, a lot of this is very sort of like archetypical spooky monsters. And then I also like winter whites for reasons I don't understand. So (laughs) just a little bit of everything. Well, I think horror is definitely ripped our society. There's a reason games like until dawn did so well. And uh, it's really something that, the hit. I think we it's we'll have to move on because I think we can talk hours about this. In fact, we plan on doing an entire episode on this because I think it, you can spend that much time on it. Uh, in the future, we're going to be doing an episode on inclusion. We know that you've been on a bunch of LGBTQ panels. Um, you've obviously had experience with these sort of things. I find that there is a negative stigma associated with the TTRPG venues, such as, you know, your comic book stores, your nerd stores that you go and play in public. And I believe that everyone should combat these issues when they arise. But do you see from your experience uh, exclusion and gatekeeping as a big enough issue in our hobby that it needs a collective action taken against it? Absolutely. Um, It's something that I really think everybody in the hobby needs to be aware of. Because if you're not, at the very least, aware of it, you may accidentally be contributing toward it, even if you're not meaning to. Tabletop RPGs have really been a male and a white male dominated hobby, largely since their inception. Um, it means that game stores in many cases are are places where these groups, like to a degree, logically have found a thing that they enjoy doing, and this is their space and they enjoy doing it, and it's fun. But there's also sort of the feeling that it's like but this is mine, and I don't want people telling me how to do this differently. Um, I don't want people coming in and changing the the way I would play or make me uncomfortable. This is my safe space. I don't want other people coming into that and changing that. And it's particularly exacerbated by many gamers perhaps less so now, but certainly traditionally have had to deal with feeling like they're outcasts, like they're the ones who are on the fringe. So if I am, you know, victim, if I'm somebody who's, you know, just looking for my place, how could I, by the same token, be excluding other people? I'm the victim here. I'm not somebody who's forcing out other people. A lot of it is just... I think a lot of gamers don't consider that in their spaces, whether it be um, in game stores, at conventions, online message boards, whatever have you, they can, by not considering the way that their discussions might be viewed by women, by people of color, by the queer community, whatever have you, how their behaviors, their discussions, their way of playing, or the games that very much cater to them or their stories that very much highlight them can then be excluding other people who would really like to enjoy these games and participate in these games. So to an extent... It's just a matter of being aware of there are other groups. Show them in your stories. Make places for them in your world, in your games, in your groups. And best of all, when people who are maybe not the core demographic of these games do show up at your game store, 
And nobody's asking you to fawn over them because that's going to scare away like people faster than anything else. But making sure that they're that it does feel like a safe space. That like you know, if a woman shows up at the the table, that there's not going to be some creepy dude who's just like you know making eyes at her the whole time. That if there is a queer person there, that you know somebody's not like making homophobic jokes. Elements like that. The more we can just sort of be like, hey. We really want everybody to feel like they have a place at the table and we're going to put our uh, essentially our money where our mouth is by, in some cases, having those conversations that like, hey, we want you to be here. So these sorts of behaviors that might be, you know, conducted by other people are now not okay. That's an important first step. So, yeah, I think it's just something we all have to be mindful about. And you're right when you say it's sort of a, a thing that takes intention and, and can be difficult and that sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. Uh, one of the first times I ever um, preached or, 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 or it wasn't really a sermon because it was to a youth group. I, you know, everyone has like an internet voice like, oh, your stuff is stupid. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks, internet. Right. My internet voice was stereotypically gay and I did not even know that's what I was doing. It was just like, <laughs> I think your podcast is stupid. And somebody afterwards came up to me, an older man. I really appreciate his wisdom. He said to me, you might want to take that voice out of your repertoire because even if you don't mean it, that's how it's going to be taken. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one. I think one of the most important things in my entire professional career that I've ever seen is Judy Bauer, who is now managing editor at Paizo. She made a habit of when she would be reviewing Adventure Paths, she would go through and she would create a simple tally of all of the male characters and all of the female characters. And at one point... She took that back to a developer who, great guy, super nice guy, like, think the world of this developer, um, and was like, all right, so I just want to let you know that there are 50 characters in this adventure. 47 of them are (laughs) men. Three of them are women. Two of those women are prostitutes. The third one is dead. (laughs) Hashtag nailing it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the third one is dead. Inclusion. So it's not that... And as soon as the developer saw that, he was just like, Oh my, I just wasn't thinking about it. And that's the thing. It's like, if you're not thinking about it, you end up falling into these... Falling into very sort of rote design spaces or ruts or stereotypes. Um, And some of those end up being sort of problematic. But as soon as we got into the habit of being like, hey, we're going to be mindful of this, eventually it just got to the point where it's like we had gender parity much more often. The number, we were much more mindful about including people of color, about people from various backgrounds and various sexualities. Because the best way to show people that they are welcome at the game table is to highlight them in our stories and to be like, look, we think so highly of you or your background or your experience that we want to tell stories about them. They're right here. Here are their characters like you. And for some people, you know, it's like, I'm a white dude. Like, I can find all of the white heroes like i there is no lack of white dude heroes for me but as a gay man growing up in the 90s trying to find a a gay hero uh, so when i did finally find one when i did finally see myself represented in a book it was huge it was hugely impactful for me and that sort of work is continuing and needs to continue because those impacts are still real today and are still important today 
I'm sure I've mentioned it because I'm just so, you know, no, I'm so narcissistic <laughs> that I'm so proud of myself for doing this, uh, is that sometimes when I create a character, just apropos of nothing, I just go switch the gender, yep. whatever the heck I had in mind. And it hasn't been for inclusion reasons. It was just been for character for reasons and ended up creating something that was cooler. Uh, but that ends up, that might be something you want to, uh, listeners can try. Another thing is when you, when you have, I think we've also mentioned this before that tropes are okay stereotypes are not mm. it's a fine line that you should try to walk yeah. you can have the damsel in distress trope but if every woman is that you've now you've 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 crossed a line into a stereotype where now this woman is uh it, it, that's what she is that's her her thing and we talked about before i think also the difference between set pieces and characters you can have the busty barmaid as just a set piece. She doesn't end up really being a character. As soon as that sort of crosses the line to a character, you start rethinking what were your initial knee jerks yeah. to, to throw at this character. Yeah, absolutely. You've also mentioned something that I think is a really tough thing. You, you talked about including other cultures to, to make a representation. Like you said, you found somebody who represented you. And I think that can be certainly very tough because you you don't want to walk so far as to, well, all I really know about Japanese culture, these few things that I've gotten from movies, I end up doing it and it ends up being a, a ridiculous, almost facsimile. Somebody say that word for me. Facsimile. Thank you. Facsimile of what it should be, right? It almost becomes insulting. And I think that, that part of intention and the people who you're playing with know it because it could be more than the opposite of beckoning people to your player uh, to your table and the guy sits down and sees his culture is so ridiculously stupid uh the way you represent it he's like you know what? thank you but no thanks absolutely i mean i think there is a different onus between game player and game creator um i mean certainly if you're a game player it's one thing to be like hey i want to represent you know things from this culture in my game i'm going to do my research i'm going to try to be respectful about this and certainly if i have somebody with that experience at my table per- perhaps they can help me build this and help me learn and help me do better if they are interested in doing such things. As a game creator, though, um, it is much more on you to get it right because the audience is the world and there are people that live with these experiences and who are more than happy to work with you and write for you and it is you are going to get a far more realistic version of fantasy Africa or Japan or the Ukraine by somebody who has actually grown up in those places and lived those experiences and can share their stories with you. And sometimes it's challenging to find those people, but it's up to you as the creator, as the publisher, as a game maker to hunt those down if you're going to be serious about doing it right. And you also kind of sort of, as a as a creative person, you do get to take things and no longer are you trying to represent an entire culture. Maybe you're just taking this one aspect from Italian culture and then no longer are you trying to represent it in a whole and then doing a bad job. It's like, no, I thought this was cool. I wanted to make my own sort of culture that sort of took that in it to make something interesting. And it's cool because it's a fantasy sort of thing. We're not, what's the word? Uh, uh, appropriating. It's, it's a, it's a sort of different factor when you get sort of into the, to the fantasy world, but that, uh, we've spent a lot of time on this question uh, uh, and we could talk for hours and hours about yeah, it. Yeah, it's a big one and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done but there's more people doing it right than ever before but I think it's one of those things where like, you know, it's never going to be done. There's never going to be a point where it's like, oh, 
and we're inclusive now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've done yep. it. Checkbox Absolutely. done. Next on the list. Yeah. Defeat racism. <laughs> exactly. So it's just something that everybody is going to have to be mindful of and honestly are, need to be open to the conversation. Like, so often people are like, well, don't criticize me. This is my game. It's just like... Just be willing to talk about this. Just be willing to listen and to understand. And maybe sometimes to just shut your mouth and be like, oh, I might have made the wrong call here. Based on new information, I may need to revise my my behavior. And that's that's just life. And I think that's the point of it all. It's to avoid hurting somebody else. So if somebody ends up saying, this hurt me, then you've got to fix that. That's the point of even having it in your mind. Yeah. But I actually sometimes have... The opposite problem of what you're talking about is I I want to be inclusive and I want to have a woman in every single set, uh, uh, game I've ever run because it just cuts down on dick jokes by about 75% <laughs> and that makes me so happy. Uh, but just like you're saying, you said imagine if a homosexual person, imagine if a woman is there, how would that change things? I want a woman there because it changed things and I love the way it changes. And I've only ever managed to have maybe about mm, 50% of my games have a woman. It's the thing I try to be inclusive. I just can't always find somebody who uh, I know that would be into Pathfinder for that for yeah. me. So it's not as easy as just, I want it to happen, so it's going to be there. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's sort of the root of one of the challenges here, is there are so many spaces that are still so masculine-dominant, uh, that are still so white-dominated, that are still feel uninviting, that... You know, it's easy for a woman or a person of color or uh, somebody of an LGBTQ person to, like, go to a forum or a message board and just be like, well, this is a hot trash fire. No, thank you. And their involvement in the game ends there. Um, changing those spaces and making those more welcoming, I think, is, is a major first step in, you know, just seeing an increase in diversity throughout the entire hobby. Did I say we were recording the inclusion episode in the future? Because I meant the very near future. Yeah. That's dumb. We're just going to cut that up, package it. <laughs> Did we just finish that episode? <laughs> I, I might have been talking about this with, like, tons of, like, folks at Paizo, like Jessica Price, like Crystal Frazier, um, James Sutter, others, for years and years and years now. So there's there's a lot of... We've done this. And in fact, I mean, if anybody's going to be at Gen Con every year, myself, Jeremy Crawford from Wizards of the Coast, Joe Carricker, Renee Knight, Steve Kenson, Crystal Frazier, others, um, do a seminar called Queer as a Three-Sided Die, which is very much sort of, we're designers that make RPGs. We're the designers that make your favorite RPGs. We're also queer folks. This is the state of the nation as we know it, but also, what do you want us to do better? Let us go back to our humble villages and attempt to, uh, you know, attempt to do things better. Tell us what we screwed up. We'll fix it. If you're at Gen Con, definitely uh, check out uh, Queer as a Three-Sided Die. Very important topic, and we really appreciate your thoughts on yeah. that. Thank you. My last question is this. Why no love for the cat folks? Until... Very recently, there was no support for the cat folks since the advanced class guide, and that was all of, like, um, six pages, if that. They're my favorite, and I think the guys over at Paizo have an anti-cat agenda. Do you deny it? No, not really. 
Um, a, <laughs> I knew it. A, it's just I knew it. Especially since we put Blood of the Beast on the schedule largely just to troll Mark Morland. Um, it's like, we're going to put this on the schedule, and then we're going to make Mark develop it. I knew it was more <laughs> of a joke than a real supplement. What? No, I mean, it's really good. And you know, all of Paizo's children are created equal. He says as no longer mm-hmm. an employee of Paizo Inc. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's funny. Cat folk are... Yeah, you can tell all the dirty secrets now. <laughs> uh, Blow them up. Tell the truth about this anti-cat agenda. No one listens to us, don't worry. Well, I was also talking about lying a whole lot, too. Um... Oh no! Have you been lying? Wait, has this entire episode been you gaslighting yeah, us? Yeah, thank you guys for coming to the ga- the gaslighting episode. Um, <laughs> um, ha ha ha! This has been my podcast all the time. Um, so uh, no, actually, the cat folk are in an interesting place because they are a player race, and first of all, the art for them is incredible. It was done by Carolina uh, Ede um, or Ede. I'm never sure how to say her last name. Um, but she's absolutely one of my favorite uh, Pathfinder artists. And she did this fantastic, like, really lanky, lean piece for, I think it was Bestiary 2. Um, that's just mm-hmm. incredible. Um, and Catfolk are such sort of a, you know, from, like, Thundercats to, like, a dozen different <laughs> yeah. characters and, like, video games. Uh-huh. It's just such a Cereal tro- boxes. Absolutely. I mean, everybody wants to play <laughs> Tony the, the Tiger. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially as a barbarian. That trope comes up again and again. Um, but, no, it doesn't. <laughs> they're in a weird spot because their inception was in a bestiary and the hardcovers generally don't have a ton of world flavor attached to them. So, so they came out, they were immediately popular, but they didn't have a hook in the world anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as the game continued to progress, you always get into that weird place where it's just like, some people love them, some people hate them, and some people are just like, uh, weirdly sexualized right. animal people. I don't know how to address my feelings about You're saying this. that like it's a negative um, thing. Well, you know, <laughs> to each their own. Um, Listen, there, we have an entire community. I mean, I mean, they have an entire community of furries that I don't... <laughs> I need to go. Um, so it's been a thing where there was never a good fit for them. And then finally, sort of internally, we got an idea for like, oh... Cat folk come from there. Well, when are we going to do a thing with there? Uh, later. And that's sort of like the Never. place that they've been in. Um, <laughs> so, at some, rest assured that the folks at Paizo do have a plan for where the cat folk go, and there's even uh, twos of people that might be very excited about getting there. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. There are twos of people yeah. that are interested Upward in this. Upward of three people that are very excited. <laughs> so they, uh, I don't even really use uh, too much of Paizo's lore uh, and Galarian like that because I only ever run homebrew stuff. Uh, uh, so I sort of created my own, you know, story about them. Very, we were talking about, you know, with inclusion, mm-hmm. um, or we will be talking about with inclusion. Uh, sort of taking other people's cultures, and I, I like to, I like to tell a little, I told a little story about how I felt about Native Americans, and what was happening to mm. them, and all that. Mm-hmm. But I, I like, like to get more, 
more more you know game stuff more class options and things like that i hope to see that well certainly whether you're at conventions or you just want to look them up online or anything like that mark moreland is definitely uh paizo's a number one proof opponent of cat folks so yeah definitely look up developer mark moreland he's uh the lead designer or or the design lead on blood of the beast and uh he can help you out with all your cat folk questions caleb has found an ally in this dismal world <laughs> against him all i heard was a call for all of our listeners to find his email and just inundate his inbox. yeah by all means <laughs> Wes, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us. We really, really appreciate it. You were such a great guest. Thank you so much for coming on today. Absolutely. My pleasure, guys. Is there anywhere you want to point our listeners to get more of you? Uh, You can definitely check me out on my Twitter, which is just at F. Wes Schneider. Um, For Franklin? uh, Sure, Uh, whatever. Francis? Um, Okay. Um, Damn it! I was <laughs> uh, so you can find me on Twitter there. You can also find me every Sunday around three o'clock um, Pacific Standard Time uh, on Twitch, playing games for the internet, usually spooky games or talking about Pathfinder stuff or other RPG things. So yeah, you can find me there. You should make Slenderman your next thing. Tie it in. Have like a. <laughs> it's a good idea. Thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Class is dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. some D&D tonight? Oh, I can't. My parrot's gonna have open-heart surgery again. That sucks. Yeah, it's gonna be super boring. Hang in there, Danny. She'll pull through. But remember, when you can't play, listen. At Tales from the Lich, we do our best to provide an immersive RPG play session with an ever-expanding library. When you can't play, listen. TalesfromTheLich.com